This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. We look at it as a four-legged stool. Theology, culture, personality, and skill set. Those are the four legs. If you miss any one of those, you're going down. Hi, I'm Carl, and I'm a small church pastor, and welcome to Can This Work in a Small Church? My guest in this episode is Matt Steen, a former pastor and church planter, now with Chemistry Staffing. In this episode, we talk about how to make a better pastor church fit for the long term. This episode is filled with practical advice, including what's changed in pastoral transition and placement over the last generation, how the pandemic has accelerated pastoral transitions, and at the core of it, the five key principles to look for when looking for a new pastor or as a pastor looking for a new church. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and an answer to the question, can this work in a small church? Well, Matt, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you on as a guest today. Carl, it's always good. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, you told me you'd behave yourself during the podcast, but that'll just make for a boring one. So hopefully uh, hopefully you'll do something a little bit odd just to brighten the room up a little bit, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, you know, good thing for you. My wife is out of town today. Oh, okay. Normally she sits just off, you know, off camera and functions as my conscience. So, I mean, I could get as well. <laughs> oh boy. Jiminy Cricket is gone. Who knows what we're going to get today. Exactly. This is very interesting. Hey, we're, we're going to talk today about finding the right fit for pastors and for churches. You have a lot of background in that. Well, what I want to do is right now, I think we're in a season coming out of post-pandemic. I think I've got this picture in my head that during the pandemic, even after lockdowns and so on, it was like uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when they go into Narnia and it's always winter but never Christmas and everything's frozen in place. And then spring comes and with the thaw, everybody's delighted that there are yeah. buds now appearing that haven't appeared for a long time, but it brings new dangers as they try to cross a river that previously was frozen the cracking ice now makes it life-threatening. Yeah. And it feels that way right now to me in the church for pastors, for churches, for pastoral searches, for churches looking for pastors, for pastors looking to leave. Are you seeing anything similar to that? Or how would you categorize this moment in pastoral search terms? I love that analogy because I think that's brilliant. I think that's really appropriate. This is why I came on the podcast is to be able to get material like that to be able to use because up until now, you know, I've just been using the technical term of it's it's weird right now, right? <laughs> Thank you for that. That's awesome. But it is. It, I mean, I think it's fraught with peril is a good way of look to look at it from the church standpoint. Man, we're seeing we're seeing a ton of turnover, right? We're seeing a ton of people that are they're leaving their church for one reason or another. Um, we've watched a lot of people walk away from ministry, a lot of mm -hmm. pastors, a lot of youth and worship pastors, especially. Really? Yeah. You know, I'll have people that want to fight me on this, but I look at the last couple of years and the roles that I think took COVID hardest were youth and youth and worship. And the reason for that is March of 2020. Pastor comes into those two offices because stereotypically they're they're the youngest and most techie. And the pastor says, I need you to innovate us 30 years in 30 days. Good point. Get us up online. Right. Yeah. And so all of a sudden their role becomes online campus pastor. And so they're 40, 50, you know, 107 hours a week, however many is devoted to that. And then what happens? We start, depending on where in the country, you know, we start coming back in person and you and I both know how it works in the church. You know, once, once you get something slapped on your job description, it never comes off. Yep. And once you have something that's working, you know, you don't stop it. And so all of a sudden the time that they were put into this online campus pastor role 
still was top priority, but also top priority is, hey, you know, we need you to do what we're paying you for. And so most of those guys, they kind of grit their teeth and said, hey, you know, I get it. This is a, we've never been through this. I can make it through Christmas. We'll get to 2021 and everything will be normal. You know, we see how that worked out, right? Remember when we were that naive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And somewhere around March or April of 2021, we started to watch those guys just burn out. It just got to be too much. They were tired of not seeing their kids. They were exhausted. And so those two roles in particular, we watched walk away from ministry in droves in that March, April time period. And so instantly that particular candidate pool got a whole awful lot younger and a whole awful lot less experience. And it felt like overnight to us, because that used to be a fairly straightforward search for us. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, where'd everybody go? Yeah. That's part of what you see. Part of what we see are, you know, just a lot of people that are beat up. Um, There's a lot of carnage out there. I mean, you, you know, this. We've got a lot of guys that I feel like we're sending more people to counseling now than we are to churches. Internally, we have what we call the Home Depot conversation, where it's just like, hey, man, you've been through a hard season. Ministry is going to be there. You take some time off, you know, take care of your family, bind up your wounds, make sure your kids don't hate the church, you know, get to the point where your spouse, you know, can go back to sitting in service again. And maybe that's a six month sabbatical. Maybe that's 12 months. Maybe that's maybe that's the end of vocational ministry for you, but we're having a lot more of those conversations now. And so you talk about thin ice and fraught with peril. A lot of times our search teams, because we don't do this a lot, we're liable to to hire somebody who's really beat up internally, um, really beat up spiritually, and and is going to bring the baggage from their last church into, into their next church. And so we just need to be really on guard for that in this season. Yeah, we've known, uh, I think, statistically and just experientially for years. I'm, I'm a third generation pastor and I've had over 40 years in pastoral ministry. And I have seen over and over again, without question, the most hazardous time for churches is in a, a pastoral transition. Absolutely. It's doubly hazardous when it's happening because of a moral failure or some kind of church split. And then in addition to that, you've got the whole post-pandemic a situation of trauma, some people leaving because it just simply, ex- like you talked about, the exhaustion, the stress, the difficulty. And, and then they, like you say, they take it to their next church. That happened to me. I've been 29 years in my current church. But when I came, it was because I was leaving my previous church limping. Yeah. And the church I came into was limping. They'd been through five pastors in the previous 10 years. Oh. And the Lord somehow used a hurting pastor and a hurting church to, and he helped both of us bless each other and heal each other. But that isn't typically the case. No. If you you put a hurting church with a hurting pastor during a hurting time yeah. <laughs> that oh, we're yeah. living in now and coming out of now, and it's really a recipe for a whole bunch of disaster. I want to back up a little historically to getting to this point. Yeah. When I, like I said, I'm 40 years in pastoral ministry, third generation pastor. So I've, you know, this pastoral stuff is baked into me. And it seemed, was I naive when I was a kid thinking that pastoral transitions were fairly standard and a lot easier than they are today, and that they've become much more complicated? Have we simply figured out better ways to do it? And so we got more tools in the tool belt, or is it a more complicated process today? I very well might be seeing it wrongly because I could be filtering it through, you know, childhood and teenage lens. Yeah. Setting aside pandemic stuff, what have you seen changing in pastoral transition or how, what does your research show from the last, from this generation compared to a generation ago? You know, I think the biggest difference is the role of the denomination. I think, you know, we, in the last, what, 40 years, give or take, we've seen the the rise of the non-denominational church. Right. And at the same time, we've also seen the weakening of a lot of our denominational structures, Right. And so, you know, coming out of a Baptist background, the way it used to work is that either a DOM or somebody in the Baptist hierarchy would know of a church that's looking for somebody would pass along a resume because he had a pretty good idea of who the pastors in the churches were, who was ready to step into a new role, that kind of thing. And there were kind of gatekeepers to make sure that people that were that weren't ready or were a little beat up or something like that couldn't do it. A lot of other denominations, you know, they're 
denominational hierarchy has people in a lot more hands-on and involved in the process, whether it's a district superintendent or bishop or, or whatever. I think what's happened is with the weakening of our denominational structures and, and the lessening of importance that even churches that are part of those denominations are putting into you know, denominational life, their ability to really speak into that process and help guide that process has, has really um, eroded. And, and so I think a lot of what's going on is, I guess, outside of maybe the, the Methodists, there's not a whole awful lot of direct placement going on these right. days. But even the support system that denominations used to have, for one reason or another, you know, just isn't there like it used to be. And so yeah. that's, I think that's part of it. I think we've got a lot of people that, you know, used to have that support to lean on all of a sudden because of staff reductions or whatever, you know, no longer have that support system. I think yeah. the other piece of it is, this is going to get me in trouble. I, I think our seminaries <laughs> have kind of shifted and, and don't necessarily do as good of work of preparing a Presbyterian pastor for their unique denominational tribe, right? Right. And of course, we're just talking about the Presbyterians. Everybody else does it well. Oh, everybody else is. Obviously, that's an example. And you could have put any other denominational name in that. Oh, and that's not. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think what we've learned is, I mean, it used to be if you went to like a DTS, you knew what you were getting. If you went to Denver or if you went to, you know, Fuller yeah. or na name your name brand seminary. Yeah. Yeah. And any denominational seminary, they were exactly. training for their pastor. It's in their churches. And most of them are not, are not focusing on that anymore. Most of them haven't necessarily abandoned it, but that is no longer their focus. Exactly. Exactly. And so you see a lot of people that are coming out that don't necessarily hold to that theological tradition of the denomination, but you're also seeing a lot of people and a lot of seminaries, you know, going after people to get an MDiv to go into the nonprofit space or to go mm -hmm. into counseling or just right. to have a vanity degree is, I mean, talking to different, to different seminaries and Bible colleges, we're talking to, we're hearing a lot of these schools saying, Hey, we, we have people that are getting MDivs that have no desire to go into pastoral ministry. Wow. And I hear that and I scratch my head and it's like, if you're going to get a vanity degree, why are you going to get an MDiv? That yeah, that's is a, interesting. That's a yeah. lot of time and a lot of work, you know, go get a, go get an MA, you know, and save yourself two years of frustration, <laughs> you know, just saying. It is interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of that too. So you don't know what you're getting out of seminaries like you used to. And, and there's a lot of people that are, that are coming out that are just no, no intention of going into ministry, which is, which is mind blowing to me. Yeah, so. it really is a different landscape than it used to be. So let's narrow in on some practical things. So for the pastor who's considering leaving their church or who is not in a church right now and is looking for something, and that is your area of expertise is matching up the right pastor with the right congregation. I know in the work that you do, you have five key factors yeah. uh, that you work on to help people find a long-term fit. So what are those factors? And then we'll walk through them one at a time. List them for yeah. me, first of all. Yeah. So, so first is theological alignment. Okay. The second is church cultural fit. Okay. Not geographic culture. Geographic is important, but church cultural fit. Gotcha. Personality. Mm -hmm. You know how that works. Skill set. And then the fifth is, is chemistry. So gotcha. is this somebody that you actually like enough to spend the next five years with or, or however? Gotcha. Okay. So let's take a look at those one at a time. Theological alignment number mm -hmm. one. What are we talking about here? How do you how do you take a look at that? Yeah. So every church has its own closed-fisted theological issues, and they also have a series of open-handed theological issues, right? The closed-fisted are the non-negotiables. Back to the Presbyterians, typically they're reformed. You know, the last thing that they want is to have a Wesleyan on their staff. And so part of it is part of what a person that's applying needs to do or a church needs to do is they, they have to know and own what are those closed-fisted theological issues that they're not going to budge on. At the same time, they have to have an understanding of what are our open-handed issues. So maybe you're a church that is, um, you, you might lean complementarian, but you're, you're not what we call angry about it. And right. so you'd be okay with somebody that comes from a more egalitarian standpoint, as long as they're okay with the party line at the church, and they're not going to try to fix you, that kind of thing. Right. So that would be more open-handed. If you're close-fisted on it, you know, you bring somebody who's egalitarian to that church. 
that's never going to work and should never work. So that, gotcha. that's kind of what we're, what we're I, looking I for. I love those two terms. I, closed-fisted and open-handed is a great description of that because immediately anybody listening who's paying attention at all to the theological landscape will know that there are certain denominations that are becoming surprisingly closed-fisted on things they used to be very open-handed about. Absolutely. You just mentioned complementarianism is one of those. Yeah. And yeah. other other denominations that are becoming really open-handed about things that, quite frankly, I'm convinced they should be more close-fisted on. <laughs> like, <laughs> these are I, these are biblical non-negotiables, folks. How yeah. are you just kind of okay with that? But if you don't at least have alignment and an understanding there, even within your denomination, right? So you're not just talking yeah. about, okay, we believe these things, but where are you close-fisted on it? Where are you open-handed on that? Because I, I think you probably have had a lot of pastors get into a church and are shocked at the attitude coming back at them when they aren't as strong on something that the church has become close-fisted on or, or vice versa, right? Yeah. So most people, when they hear us list out these five things, they roll their eyes and they say, oh, that's brilliant, you know, and, and they're not super impressed because they don't think it's rocket science. You know, it, <laughs> it, 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 it just kind of makes sense, right? But here's here's the reality of the situation. What most what most churches do when they hire is they'll take a resume, they'll look at it and say, "Oh, I know that church. That's a great church. I listen to their pastor's podcast. It's awesome, right?" So mm-hmm. if they're doing it there, of course they can do it at our church. And so that's their kind of the skills and abilities check. And then they get into the interview part of the process. They laugh at somebody's jokes. Whoever it is reminds them of a niece or a nephew. They start to get warm and fuzzy and they begin to develop chemistry. And those are the two areas that churches focus on. What ends up happening, I'm convinced of this, you get three interviews deep and in the back of your head, you start to think, you know, I do listen to that pastor's podcast and they're a little bit more fill in the blank on a theological perspective than we are. Hmm, maybe that's going to be an issue. Oh no, God's going to work it out, right? It's going to be right. fine. Yeah. Or... Or we use the same words to mean totally different things, depending on the tribe that we're coming from. You know, John MacArthur's definition of what spirit filled means is going to be way different than Rima or name your favorite Pentecostal, their definition, but they're still going to put that in the job description. And so we don't, we don't kind of poke and prod on that kind of stuff. And so what ends up happening is, you know, we think it's going to work, but then we get 18 months in and we start to realize, oh, theologically, we are way off. Oh yeah. no, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We talked to a guy probably about six months ago, youth pastor went to a restoration movement church, came out of a Southern Baptist church and, you know, restoration movement makes a big deal out of baptism. Now mm-hmm. baptism for them is regeneration, right? Right. Which if you're coming out of a Southern Baptist tradition, you know, that's heresy. Right. And the guy realized, you know, three months in, oh no, this is what they talk about when they're talking about baptism. I got to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. So even a definition of terms, I see how that's, I can see how that gets missed and oh, yeah. I can see how important it is to establish it right up front. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So many, so yeah. many of our churches, we just don't, we think spirit led or we think, you know, whatever means the same thing from tribe to tribe to tribe and yeah. it gets us in trouble. Or even within the same tribe. Oh, (laughs) didn't want to go there, but now that you bring it up. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's number one, theological alignment. Secondly, cultural fit. Yeah. Everybody is quick to look at like the geographical culture of of something and say, Hey, you know, somebody coming from New York is never going to work in Kearney, Nebraska or, or wherever. There's some truth to that and you need to watch, but God has made a lot of people way more flexible geographical culture wise, then we give them credit for. And that's how, you know, so many of our missionaries work, right? right? What I'm most concerned about is the type of church culture that somebody's coming out of. And so one of the, one of the dangers that we see is it's can be really easy to go hire somebody from the mega church down the street, bring them into our church and think, oh, it's going to be awesome and have it just go sideways because yeah. culturally so many things are different, Right. You know, you, you bring a worship guy in from a large, you know, church of 2,000, 2,500, something like that into a church of say 300. And they may have all sorts of skills and abilities and talent, but they may also have a pretty hefty support system around them that's doing, you know, di- different odds and ends. And so all of a sudden to get into that church of 300, they look around on the first day and say, oh, I need to build my own backgrounds. Yeah. You know, I need to, I need to program the, the soundboard myself Yeah, and, and those types of things. So yeah. that's one of the things that we look at. The other thing is just how does your church operate? 
you know, you bring a church planner into a church where the congregation votes on every every check request over a thousand bucks. Good luck making that one last for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I see that often. Obviously, as I work with smaller congregations, especially the biggest, the hardest transition I see regularly is when the staff pastor of a large church feels called now to be a lead pastor and goes most of the time to a much, much smaller church as their first lead pastor it. And all of a sudden it's, wait a minute, I can't just fill out a check request form to get what I want. I've got to actually figure out how to raise the money for it. Oh yeah. Or, Or I think I need things that I don't necessarily need in this environment. The culture fit is, I'm going to say it's never smooth. Right. And it's seldom easy and it often doesn't fit at all from the large to the small. I think in many more cases, it could work if they would consider the cultural differences between big and small. And that's just one cultural difference. It's just the one that happens to most, most impact what we're doing in this podcast, but it's just one cultural fit. Realizing that you need to at least ask the questions and see that these cultures are different in advance. I think a lot more of them could make it work, but Mm -hmm. you can't unless you know at least first to ask the question and then actually pursue and get the information and know how to adapt. One of the things that we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of people that are burnt out on the big church that are going to the smaller churches think it's going to be easier. Yeah. (laughs) Good luck. But part of our role is, you know, when we get somebody like that, we beat on them pretty hard and try to convince them that they don't want anything to do with it because they're not going to have the support system around them. They're not going to have the, the same budget flexibility. They're not going to have the same, you know, ability to kind of go and do whatever they want and, and try to get a sense of, you know, Hey, are you going after this dream of this, you know, easier type of a lifestyle, or are you really feeling called to a smaller church and have a clear understanding of what you're getting into? We find probably about half the guys, you know, have a pretty good understanding of what they're getting into. The other half is just, they're going to be there for three months and realize, Oh, I made the worst mistake ever. Yeah. And some cultures you can adapt across and some, the wall is going to be too thick and you're going to look at it in advance and go that's better, it. better. I figure out it's easier to break up before the marriage than after the marriage. Right. It's a, oh, that's, that's true. Yeah. That's that is it's, true. It becomes like a divorce. If, if you find out afterwards, you want to find all that out in advance. What was, I think it was Benjamin Franklin gets credited for saying almost all this cool stuff, but I think it was him who said, go into marriage with both eyes open and go through marriage with one eye shut. This is the going into it with both eyes open part we're talking that's about. That's it. Just, Yeah, get all the answers up front. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com slash support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. All right, so that's the church culture fit. Thirdly, personality. Personality. You know, we are we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That means God made us with our quirks. Mm-hmm. You know, and part of what we need to figure out going into this is: Are my quirks going to feed into? your insecurities are my quirks going to just annoy the living snot out of you and make you wish that I'd never, you know, part of it is just getting a sense of, of what is the personality of this person? Do they align with the personality of our, of our 
church, of our current team, of our board? And, and are we going to be able to have, you know, really kind of accept this person for, for who they are coming in? And yeah. we all think, oh, it's the church. It's going to be, but, you know, we need to, we need to be aware of our quirks. So, yeah. Well, and not only are, do people have personality quirks, churches do as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that I teach when I'm talking to small church pastors is the smaller your church is, the quirkier it is. Absolutely. Because the individual personalities have a greater impact on the whole. If Absolutely. you're talking about two or three mega churches side by side, yes, they will have distinctions, but there won't be these quirky differences between them. There's going to be a standardization exactly. across that. This rough edges get smooth. Yeah. Yeah. And the smaller it gets, the more you've got to have an idea of what those quirks are going to be before you show up. Because God bless them. The quirkiness of the small church is both its strength and its weakness. Absolutely. But if we don't understand it, it's only weakness. If we understand it, we can capitalize on the strength. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Personality. Next one then is skill set. Skill set. This is straightforward. And most of our churches do a half decent job on this. It's just, you know, is this person ready to do the job? You know, have they, have they done it before? Are they, have they trained for it? Are they ready to step up into it? That kind of thing. Most churches are used to going through and creating this job description and only, only probably a quarter of the job description is a lie coming in. I mean, <laughs> but you know, we've, we've gotten to the point where we're pretty good at figuring out what, what does this look like and, and all, but we need to make sure that somebody can actually do the job and, and are ready to step into it. Otherwise, you know, six months in, you're going to yeah. realize oh dear, we need to, we need to move away quick. So, yeah. Plus you may not use this term for this step, but I've got to think that in the skill set, there's something similar to the closed fisted and open-handed, that there's going to be a core set of skills that are absolutely required to do the job. And another set of skills that, well, if you had, it, it would really be nice. It would be wonderful, mm-hmm. but we can figure out how to compensate for that or work around that. And to that's know it. the distinction between those two, right? That's, that's it. You know, so many like associate roles, so many, um, especially in smaller churches, so many of the combination roles, you know, like youth and insert, you know, fill in the blank or whatever, you know, those, those are some of the conversations we have. It's like, Hey, what, what is the most important piece of this? You know, what is your non-negotiable? And then what are some nice to haves that we could potentially backfill in? Right. And so if a church comes to us and says, Hey, you know, we need a, a worship and a youth pastor. Part of what we ask is, Hey, you know, what, what is the most important one of those things? You know, cause there's no such thing as a 50, 50, right. And, and we start to walk through that and try to unearth what are, what are the nice to haves. And if it's, you know, if youth is the primary role and worship isn't as important, it is, well, are there a couple other areas that this role could fit into if we find somebody that checks all the boxes on your youth role and maybe is a better discipleship pastor than worship pastor. And so the flexibility on that is super helpful, especially, especially in those combo or, you know, associate pastor, which, you know, encompasses who knows what. So, yeah. Yeah. My first position in ministry was under a senior pastor who was close to retirement and was ailing and was just missing a lot of things. And Mm. a major part of my job description was to pick up the stuff he dropped. Uh, the the old elastic clause, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, they literally said that he's missing things. He's forgetting things. Part of it is to have oversight on that. And uh, yeah, thankfully the Lord helped me do that. And um, we did it all right for for a little while, but uh, yeah, that was, that was part of the job description. All righty. And then number five is chemistry. Chemistry. Ironic that we're named that big part of what we're trying to do. We're, we kind of are frustrated with this idea that people are in place for three years, right? We want to see pastors be in place for five years. And so when we talk to a church, we're asking them, you know, does this pastor, does this person have natural chemistry with you guys enough, enough so that you're going to want to hang out with them for the next five years? Is this somebody that is going to fit in in, and you're going to want to invite them over for barbecue on Thursday night? Is this somebody that you're comfortable with doing your daughter's wedding? Is this somebody that you'd feel comfortable going in and and sitting down for a counseling session or having sit at your bedside, you know, if, if you're in the hospital, you know, it's those types of things. Is this somebody that so fits who you guys are that you're comfortable enough to do that and you want them to be with you for the next five years and you see them being, you know, just this key piece of your faith community's life, of your relational life, all that kind of thing. So, okay. Yeah. That's a big deal. Now we, we yeah. focus a lot on that and most churches 
like I said, the skill set and the and the chemistry piece are the two that most churches really focus on. Right. But the chemistry piece is, is pretty huge. Yeah, it has to be there. I, it feels though, in some ways, like it's at the end of the of the series, not because it's less important, but because it feels to me like it should be maybe the last thing we look at. It's kind of like the, yeah. the worship leader at our church, for instance, just was commenting on how she selects songs. And she said, when somebody recommends a song to her, she reads the lyrics first yep. before listening to the song, because she doesn't want to get sucked in by a beautiful song, a beautiful melody or a beautiful buildup and think, oh, I want to have that emotional buildup. And then look at the lyrics and go, eh, I think yeah. I can make it work. Like yeah. if the lyrics don't fit, I'm not going to get sucked in by the chemistry of the song. That's it. That's right. it. We we look at it as like a, you graduate seminary, you have to have a stool analogy, right? So we, we look at it as a four-legged stool, mm-hmm. you know, theology, culture, personality, and skill set. Those are the four legs. If you miss any one of those, you're going down, right? Right. But you can, I mean, you can sit on a four-legged stool. It's not going to be really comfortable. In fact, it's still going to be a pretty miserable experience until you put that seat on. And that's what we, we see the chemistry piece mm-hmm. as being the seat. That takes oh, all those other core components and is going to make it a much easier ride in the days to come. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Let's come back. I love this. There's some, some great foundational stuff, but in the last few minutes before we get to the lightning round here, oh boy. let's talk to some of the pastors who right now may be in a, let's first of all, talk to the pastors who are in a church and the spring is coming and things are breaking up and they're looking around thinking this may be my time to leave. In my tradition, from my church background, up until a generation ago, it was once you feel the Lord's calling you to leave, you get up, you announce your departure, you get out pretty quickly, and then it's up to the church to figure out the next pastor. You just let that go. That was our tradition. That was not every church tradition. But as we've talked about already, I think even in those that have typically had a stronger denominational oversight, the means by which transition is happening is change. It has changed and is changing. Those changes have been accelerated by pandemic stuff. So talking to a pastor who right now is in a church who believes it's their time to leave and look for something else, do you have any practical advice for like first steps? Do they just quit first? Do they find a new church before they do so? If they go and candidate at another church, how do they do that without it being all over social media in advance of (laughs) everybody else finding out? Like, is is there an order to this that is even semi-universal or is it, are all the rules off the table and every situation is completely different? So total consultant answer. It depends, right? (laughs) So here's, here's what I would say. Generally, we know at least six months before we leave that we're on our way out, right? Mm -hmm. Generally, we know. And so what I encourage pastors to do is you still have a responsibility to care well for your congregation during that six months that you're, you know, taking your final bow or whatever. Take the time to make sure that they're set up well for the interim period. Okay. You know, intentional interims are no longer the norm. They need to be. Honestly, I think the work of interim pastors is incredibly important. And for some reason, it's nowhere near as normal as it used to be. But begin the process of getting your church ready to be able to last 12 to 18 months without a pastor. Okay. 12 to 18. That's okay. So I just want to, I want to reiterate that. I, I tell, I tell churches to think 12 to 18 months and then you pray, you pray that it's six, right? right but right, right. think 12 to 18. So take the time to make sure that there is lay leadership in place that can own different pieces of ministry. Make sure that, you know, you have some people and you don't have to go and broadcast, hey, I'm, I'm heading out, but you can begin to delegate. You can begin to make sure that there is going to be some consistency and some, the ability for the church to be able to continue to thrive while in that transitional period. Okay. So, so begin to do that. Don't start any new initiatives. Don't, you know, launch out into right. any brand new trendy thing. Gotcha. Begin to move back, go head into a season of simplicity. That's the best thing that you can that you can do for your church. I'd also encourage you to put together a file for the next guy. Who are the people in the church that they need, they really need to get to know? Where's the combination to the safe? You know, just all those different practical things, all those different relational things, just to brief the next guy coming in and, and let them know. I would you know, begin to have some conversations depending on the health of your board, depending on the health of your church with leadership ahead of time 
It doesn't necessarily need to be broadcast and all that kind of thing, but but to begin to have the conversations with some of your key leadership to say, hey, look, I think I'm probably coming to the end of my time here and have the conversations to start to prepare them for that. They're going to need some time to mourn. Okay. Don't tell them one week that you're thinking that you're leaving. And then the next week start to talk through all the necessary stuff. Teresa and I would live with my father-in-law in the last years of his life when he was walking through cancer. He had known, I mean, he had known he was coming to the end and all that kind of stuff. And we were still early on and Teresa loved her father. And one day he looked at her, he retired firefighter. So this explains a lot. Probably he looked at her and said, Hey, when I kick off, do you want the house? (laughs) (laughs) And it was just like that. We were watching like Matlock or something, Yeah, you know? And she's like, she let that soak in and I'm watching the tears well up in her eyes. And she looked at him and said, dad, I'm I'm not ready to have that conversation yet. And then she needed to go to the bathroom for a while. And I can definitely understand that. But I mean, keep in mind that um, if you've done this right, your people love you. Mm -hmm. If you've done this right, you have walked through some major seasons with and, and crises with your people. And you've been thinking about this likely a year, two years, six months. They're going to need some time to process that. Yeah. And so you need to give them at least, at least two weeks, probably more like a month to let this settle on them and realize, oh no, you know, you've been here with us for all this and you're leaving, let them take a period of mourning and then begin the process of walking through the issues and and helping them think through what's next. Couple, couple great resources, Carl, Mm -hmm. Wade Hodges. He wrote two books, one called before you go and one called when to leave. He has given them to us to be able to share with everybody. And so I'll send you a link and you can point people to it if that's helpful. Awesome. Yeah, we'll do that. I found them to be two of the best books um, because they're written really practically. Um, two of the best books for people that are, that are wrestling through this. And Great. love to be able to give them out to anybody that needs them. Yeah. It sounds like there are two fairly distinct stages in the process. One, there are a lot of things that you can do to prepare the ground before you even tell anybody. Yes. Uh, A lot of that first part of what you talked about was that. And then after letting everybody know, giving them enough time to process what's happening. Mm -hmm. When I was doing police chaplain training, I was a police chaplain here in town for a while. And they gave us just a few lessons on what to do. Lesson number one was where to hide if the shots start start (laughs) firing, which which where I live just never happens, thankfully. But the the other one was on giving death notifications, which I did Mm -hmm. have to do a couple of times. So somebody dies. The police go and, you know, all of a sudden a policeman and a chaplain show up at your door, you know, you've got some pretty bad news. coming. And the main lesson from that was give people even the smallest amount of time to jump to the conclusion before you actually say it. Right. So for instance, if you're on the phone and they can't see you, they don't know what's going on. Don't get on the phone and go, your husband just died. Yeah. You want to say, you want to say something as simple as, hi, I'm the chaplain from the police department. I have some bad news. Your husband was in an accident. The doctors yep. did all they could. And every one of those phrases sets it up for their brain to jump to the next thing. Right. And because they get there before you, that gives us a chance to address the trauma yes. far more capably than yes. the instant your husband's dead. And I didn't know anything until that phrase was said. Right. And similar when pastors leave a church, if all of a sudden it's I'm out and I'm gone in two weeks, it's kind of like, what did we do wrong? Kind of a thing. There's no chance to process yeah. But even just a couple more weeks than that, like a month, I know once you've told yourself you're leaving a month can sometimes seem long, especially if there are problems in the church. Yeah. But like you said, for most of us, we've known six months already. So making that last month or so, or even longer in some situations, I'm talking to a pastor right now, who's probably going to be three, four months of letting their church know in advance, because there's a really good situation there and a good relationship and they will miss him and they want the chance to process it. And he wants the chance to process it Mm -hmm. with them and to help them to do that next step. So giving them time to process that, and then to introduce the principles that we've been talking about here into that setting can really, really be helpful. So those two phases, uh, I think are really, really important on the other side of it for churches that are looking for the pastor, Obviously, they should be looking at those five things, but do you have any first steps for that? Or again, is it just so different given different church cultures and denominations? Yeah. So so the first thing that we tell people is pastor comes in and says that they're resigning, that they're retiring, that they're moving on. The first thing we tell churches is breathe. Yeah. Just, just breathe. 
you know, the, the first instinct is to go, let's go put something up on churchstaffing.com. Let's go, you know, create a new job description. Now, the first, the first thing you really need to do is breathe yeah. and sit in it and realize that God is not surprised by this. Our tendency, you know, we are in an anxious age, right? Our tendency is to, is to panic, is to get anxious and all that kind of thing. And so really it is, let's, let's breathe, let's soak in this, let's let our emotions process, and then we can kind of move forward. I encourage churches to do an exit interview, mm-hmm. do an exit interview where the pastor has the ability to speak frankly with people. And so maybe that's reaching out if you're in a denomination, maybe it's reaching out to denominational leadership and saying, hey, would you conduct an exit interview for us? Maybe it's, you know, if, if you're not in that kind of a structure, maybe it's finding a um, board member that has the relationship enough with the pastor that's on their way out to do that. And we've, we've got a template for that. We can share if that's helpful for people, but right. I highly, highly encourage that. And, and the frank discussion from that will, will suit you well. The second thing is really is once you've done those two things, take some time to step back and really get a sense of who you are as a church now. You know, who, who are you? Because you are not the same church when that pastor came three, five, 10, 15 years ago. Right. Um, we tend to think that we are, but we're not. And so let's, let's take a look and see, you know, who are we now? And be honest with ourselves. Are we a church that's average age is 72? Are we a church whose average age is 36? And we've got a bunch of young families. What realistically, as we look at the community around us, you know, what are the felt needs of the people that may not be showing up here? What, what is it that they're looking for? You know, what's the state of their soul? And use some of that to learn what does our next senior pastor, what does our next solo pastor, what skill set do they need to have? Who do they need to be? Do they need to be realistically, are we looking for a chaplain to come and care for us? Or are we looking for somebody whose goal is to get outside of our walls? having the ability to have honest, really, really honest conversations about that is going to be super helpful for you in the next transition. And I'd I'd encourage a board, bring in somebody to help you have those conversations before you begin to post. It can be, it can be a pastor from, you know, another church in your tribe that can just lead the conversation, but have somebody that'll help you guide that. I'm happy to have conversations with a church to at least give them the questions to think about before they launch into it. Yeah. Churches, they're not trained in this. We've got people who do, who are highly trained in other skill sets Mm -hmm. that they do at their work, but this is a skill set of its own. And it's one that even most pastors aren't trained in, let alone most congregation members. And the thing is a lot of times, you know, when, when we work with a search team, we'll have somebody, they'll tell us about the search team this person, they've got a big company. They hire a lot of people. And it's like, that's, that's great. Right. But keep in mind, you know, hiring a plumber and hiring a pastor, the only similarity is the P right? (laughs) You know, a plumber, I don't care how strong the relationship is between my plumber and his wife. I mean, I I care because he's a person, but you know, unless they got into a fight just before he came over, that's not going to affect how he fixes the pipes in my house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is significantly different between hiring somebody for a corporate corporate world and hiring somebody for a pastoral role. And, And fortunately we get to ask questions you know, of people in the, in the pastoral context that you're never, I mean, you never ask. It would be illegal to ask outside of the pastoral context exactly, (laughs) and, and appropriately that it's illegal there and appropriately that it's not illegal in the pastoral context. Exactly. It's a different situation. Yeah. It's huge. It's a different, it's a different situation. And really you you need to lean into those differences and, and get those quick. So, yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, let's get to the lightning round here. I got four questions for you. Are you ready? Oh boy, hit me. All righty. First of all, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years and how have you adapted to it? You know, the biggest, the biggest in this last two years is just the amount of carnage and the amount of people walking out of ministry. Yeah. And so we, we talked about this already, you know, a lot of, a lot of the conversations we're having is just, Hey, you, you need counseling. Have you seen a counselor about this? Do you need to step out of ministry? That's the most significant thing. In fact, this is conference season. And so mm-hmm. one of the, one of the weird parts of, of my role is, I mean, I must have interviewed four or 5,000 people over the last five years. And so it's not uncommon for somebody to come up and say, Hey, we, we talked about a church, you know, however many years ago. Yeah. That's always a little risky, 
you know, because <laughs> I'm always looking for my exit route, right? Or, you know, yeah. where, where to hide when the bullets are, start flying. And, and a guy looked at me and he said, you know, you told me I need a counseling. And I was, oh. I was waiting for the uppercut, you know? Yeah. But, but he said, you know what? You're the only person that told, that told me that it caused me to make the best decision of my life. And he, he stepped out of ministry for a little bit. He went through counseling. He got healing from his church and now he's back in. And so yeah. that's the biggest change, man. The last, the last two years has just been, it's, yeah. it's been night and day. Night and the day. need, the need for both pastors and churches to have emotional and mental health healing and counseling and just that's yeah it's it's a we, we needed it before but you know the pandemic turned it yeah. up to 11 yeah absolutely all right number two is there a free resource like an app or a website that's helped you lately that you would recommend for small church ministry okay not free but relatively inexpensive okay okay just um just went and reread the pastor by eugene peterson yeah really really refreshing for me okay not the traditional resource or anything like that but it just yeah reminded me of what the pastoral calling is mm. reminded me of, of, of what our role as pastor really is, is supposed to be. I think we're in a season where we have gone from, you know, the pendulum has swung from full-time pastor to corporate leader in the church space. Yep. And this has been really good for me to help me think through not just you know, myself as I, as I pastor in a local context and as I pastor the people that we're, we're shepherding through transition, but man, it has helped me to be able to help remind churches, hey, this is, this is what you're really looking for. You, you don't need you know, Jack Welch. You need a pastor. So. Yeah. I think one of the lessons learned from this difficult season is I think we did swing the pendulum too far over to the entrepreneurial business yeah. manager model. And we need to come back to an understanding of the shepherding and pastoring model and how important that is, especially in, in times of difficulty, stress and crisis, but in any church at any time, that's our calling. Absolutely. And this is, I mean, so much for lightning round, but I, I mean, as I, as I look <laughs> at, you know, I, I, this is, this is conference season and, and I kind of go from conference to conference. And one of the things that's really struck me lately is, you know, how much, how much damage are we doing with our conferences? Right. Because so much of what we put out there is the large church guy is the quote unquote success. What I love about what you're doing is, you know, you're, you're saying, Hey, it's, it's okay to be a small church. You know, it's in fact, you know, God may have called you to be a small church. And just because, mm -hmm. you know, you're a church of 200, you're not a failure, even though, you know, nobody that's leading a church like you is going to be platformed at, you know, whatever the, the big conference is this week and read Peterson. And it's just, yes, this is what it's supposed to be. Now we need to lead our organizations. Well, don't, don't hear me saying yep. that we don't, right. but if we are not pastoral first, Oh, that's, that's yeah. why the church is in the state that it's in right now. Sorry. I'm going to go off on the soapbox. No, no, I'm off. with you on that one. Absolutely. Let's go to number three. What's the best piece of ministry advice you'd have ever received? Um, the dead cat theory of leadership. All okay. Right. So you show up in a new church day one, you notice a dead cat in their last pew in the sanctuary. You look at it and you say nothing for the first 18 months. And then somewhere around the 18 month mark, you look at somebody and say, Hey, tell me, tell me about that cat. Right. And right. then you don't touch it for another six or eight months. Right. <laughs> Go slow. Don't make changes. So yeah. Leave the dead cats. Absolutely. Yeah. There's some things that just aren't worth fighting, especially when you first walk in the door, there's other stuff no. to deal with. Yeah. No. And then number four, final one, what's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? Ever seen? I, so this, this was my own experience. So back, I was a, I was a youth pastor okay. for, for eight years before I went and planted a church. In my first church, we, we had gone through a building campaign, built a big new building. The big new building had an elevator in it. And the elevator, we, we later learned, had questionable reliability. Part of my role on Wednesday nights was to go over to the new building to get everything set up for our middle schoolers to show up and just wreak havoc on the place. And so I would go in, I would take the elevator down, I would load up the elevator, take it back up and you know set everything up. Well, this one day I went into the elevator, went down and just couldn't get out. The doors wouldn't open. And so the time's, you know, clock's ticking and all that kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm sitting in this elevator and I've got nothing better to do. So I laid down and took a nap. Next thing you know... You know, I, I hear people up the elevator shaft saying they, they called me Snoop. I still don't to this day understand why, but you know, 
<laughs> young, young man in ministry, you just, you know, it's one of the better nicknames I guess I could have gotten. Yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, I hear people running around, where's Snoop? Where's Snoop? And apparently I just let out a snore. <laughs> because all of a sudden they heard the snore emanating from you know the elevator shaft and it's like oh we found him so that wow. that was one of the highlights of my time back then so <laughs> so and the lesson is when you're early in ministry take a nap whenever you have the opportunity it's kind of like get the nap when you can because yeah sleep when the baby sleeps you know that's it <laughs> all righty hey matt how can people find you online or follow up if they need to follow up on anything yeah chemistrystaffing.com is the easiest place to to do it okay go there and I'll, I'll send you over a link to if, if, if somebody wants yep. to pick my brain about something we've said, I'll give you a link just that you can grab 30 minutes with me. I'd love to be able to have a conversation about your specific situation. Awesome. And all of this will be in the show notes, of course, as it always is. Matt, I appreciate your wisdom. I appreciate your heart for pastors and for churches and for the work you do to help advance the kingdom of God moving forward. There's a lot of overlap between what we do in some very, very good ways. And it's uh, we're looking forward to doing even more work with you as time goes along. So uh, we'll continue to be in touch. And uh, folks, you're going to hear chemistry staffing and Matt Steen's names coming up more in the future as we continue to work together to help you and to bless the body of Christ. So thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Carl. Thank you. Oh, there was so much helpful, practical information in that. I especially loved the idea of paying attention to what he called closed-fisted and open-handed theological issues. So many problems would be answered if we would just pay attention to that. And I love the idea of giving churches time both to get used to a pastoral departure and to get ready for the new pastor. That alone has the potential to save a lot of heartache for pastors and churches. So... Can this work in a small church? Obviously, yes. The principles Matt talked about are especially important in a small church context, given the fact that the smaller the church is, the quirkier it is. Those characteristics of how each church is different from another need to be identified, they need to be accounted for in a pastoral search. And if they are, if you can really identify the quirky parts of your church and how we're just slightly different than any other church around, then that so-called pastoral revolving door that many of you might be dealing with may just slow down for a lot of churches. If we can prepare through prayer, through methodology, through asking the right questions, through taking our time, through so many of the other principles Matt talked about, I believe we can have better transitions, we can have longer-term pastorates, and all of this for the glory of God. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver, edited by Phil Vaders. The original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The podcast logo was created by Solomon Joy of joyetic.com. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm the Small Church Pastor. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.